0: Radio Weron. Hugh Lane and his pictures, the story of the Lane Bequest by Philip Rooney.
1: Dealing is quite a tricky business, after all. And you haven't had very much experience,
2: have you? Oh, experience? Well, I was employed in Mr Martin Colnaghi's gallery, you know. And after all, Colnaghi is considered one of the leading picture dealers in London. Oh, yes, indeed. And I did have a year's experience at the Marlborough Gallery in Pall Mall. <laughs> That's true.
1: But you were pretty young when you went to Colnaghi, weren't you? Not quite 18, I should say. Just 18. But
2: that was years ago. <laughs> Five years ago. <laughs>
1: Mr. Hugh Lane, picture dealer, 23 years old.
2: Oh, well, one must begin. In this case, I began with a mistake. i read an advertisement for an auction at a country house in Surrey, about 50 miles out of town. It was more, actually, for I had to walk almost four miles from the railway station, in the rain. Why not a cab? Surely there was a station cab? I'm afraid there wasn't any money for cab fare. My last shilling had gone on my railway fare. But that wasn't the whole trouble. When I got to the house, I found I'd misread the advertisement. The auction wasn't until the following week. Oh, bad luck. Your journey for nothing. Uh, not quite for nothing. I persuaded the housekeeper to allow me to look over the house. There were quite a number of pictures there. Poor stuff, most of them. But there was one picture that made the whole journey worthwhile. A friend's house. A friend's Hells? Now, really? No, no, I'm certain of it. It was black with dirt and varnish, but it was a friend's house. I'm certain of that. Perhaps I haven't a great deal of, well, formal experience, but I can trust my own judgment, absolutely. It was a France Harald's. And you got it? Uh, cheap? No, that's just the point. I came back to London, tried everywhere I knew to raise a loan of two or three hundred. I didn't succeed. The best I could manage was my rail fare back to Surrey on the day of the auction. I wanted to see just what would happen that picture I was so sure about. And what did happen? There were dealers there. Ten or twelve of them. Well, not really big men. The kind of fellows who crop up at every auction. Fellows with an eye for anything that's likely to show profit. Paintings, books, silver, period furniture. You know the kind. I know the
1: kind. I, I can almost see them. <laughs> I can almost hear
3: them. See the fellow over there? Oh, there? Uh, Elegant the chap.
0: Young fellow.
4: Do you know him? Oh, a uh, lordy Dole fellow. Oh, Yes. Of course, he was with Colnaghi. One of those rich young men learning all about pictures and with plenty of money to buy what has been taught to admire. I shouldn't be surprised if he spotted something. Do you think he bid? For our little lot. Oh, damn
0: it. How to be fair, would it? After all, it was
4: our man who spotted the picture. Save your breath. No point in being holier than thou. Question is, will the young fellow have a shot of the picture or can he be persuaded to stand in with us? Who'll try him? Leave him to me. I think I met the chap once.
3: i have a word with him. Hello? <laughs> Not a very interesting sale, hmm? uh, We met before, didn't we, at... at Kalnacki's, I think it was. You're Mr. Lane, aren't you? Well, that's right, my name's Lane. I thought so, I never forget a face. Quite good prices for the silver. Nothing much in your line. Pictures, I mean. The awful collection of dolls. Seen anything that interests you?
2: Since you've probably seen it too, there's no great point in being mysterious, is there? Yes, I rather thought I'd like to have that portrait. Over there, to the left of
3: that dreadful seascape in the gilt frame. Ah, oh, that's yes, the portrait girl in a lace cap, isn't it? It's hard to see, though, what with all the overpainting and dirt and varnish and what have you. <laughs> you think? I think so do you. If it's what <laughs> I think... Well, all right, right. <laughs> Let's not beat about the bush. There are a dozen of us here. We're interested in that portrait, too. Where if we start to bid against one another, we'll run out the price. You know what those country bumpkin auctioneers are. Well? Well? We are prepared to give you a fair chance of bidding for the picture... if you don't bid against us.
2: Don't bid against you?
3: Well, don't bid at all... We'll put one man up to bid, and no one else will bid. That way we have more than a good chance of getting the picture cheap, and then... And then we'll bid for it amongst ourselves, is that it? <laughs> That's it. Yes, you'll learn fast, Mr. Larry. <laughs> now, ladies and gentlemen... We'll uh, meet in the upstairs room in the Red Lion Public House in the village.
5: Now, we have here a collection of valuable and attractive old Now, I shall take up your time describing these valuable works about. Your catalogue will tell you just what we're offering. Now, ladies and gentlemen, lot 72. Now, that's a very attractive picture of, um, of a young boy. Shall we say, kingies? Oh, Here
0: we have lot 81.
5: Uh, a magnificent painting, as you can see, gentlemen. A ship at sea in a storm. That's uh, very fine indeed. Now, what shall we say, gentlemen?
4: Off you go, Max. Best of luck. Uh, uh, ten pounds.
5: Ten pounds? Well, for this magnificent oil painting, uh, we've bid it in pounds for a work of art.
3: I'll I'll make it ten guineas. Ten guineas. If you'll try in the one beside it. <laughs> the dark-looking one, a portrait of some kind, I think. Frame looks worth the extra ten bob. Uh, ten guineas.
5: Ten guineas for both lots. Any advance on ten guineas?
0: Go in, go in. Let's come to order, gentlemen. <laughs> We're all here, I think. Our young friend, too, Mr. Lane, isn't it? Well, to business. We've got a picture here that we've bought in at what I think we'd all agree is a reasonable figure. <laughs> <laughs> You've all a chance of examining it, gentlemen. Some of you may come to the opinion that it's a very valuable property. Some of you may think not. You may back your opinions with your bids. Are we ready? Huh? You may bid, gentlemen.
2: And bid they did.
0: The Hales were set up for all to see.
2: One man made a bid. Thirty pounds it was, and everyone round the table jotted down his name and the amount. Another made a bid of forty pounds, and the man who had bid thirty stood up and walked out. Well, so it went on. As each man's bid was overtopped, he left. And you? I made a bid of my own. Oh, yes, I hadn't a penny piece to back it up, but I knew by then that there were two or three really serious bidders left. I bid nine hundred pounds. Nine hundred? On an empty pocketbook? It didn't matter. I was quickly outbid. One of the others bid 950, and I left. Well, today I've been asked to call on the dealer who acted as chairman. What should I
1: do? Why, go to meet him, of course. You've taken part in your first knockout. Only don't refer to it as a knockout when you're talking to the gentleman. Oh, it'll be worth your while. The fellow who bought in the friend's Hells has got a buyer for it now, and at a whacking fine price, you may depend. Ten thousand pounds, I shouldn't wonder. The bigger the better. Every man of you who took part in that knockout in the upstairs room in the Red Lion will share in the profits the ring has made. You will share in strict proportion to the figure you had the courage to bid at the knockout. Your bid was £900, you say? Hmm? Well, your share should be pretty substantial, young man.
6: And so it was. During luncheon with the dealer who had asked him to call, Lane found under his plate an envelope containing a cheque for £300, with no comment, written or verbal, to link it with his participation in the knockout. It seems that he felt some uneasiness about the transaction, and never again did he take any part in the activities of a buyer's ring or their knockout private auctions. But he did accept that cheque for £300 and it was the foundation stone of his career. Within a year, courageously exploiting his flair, his almost inborn talent for seeing a masterpiece under the grime and dirt of an old canvas, he'd bought and sold old masters to such fabulously successful effect that he turned his 300 pounds into 10,000.
7: One of the first people to realize that talent of Hugh Lane was his Aunt Lady Gregory. Lane was the eldest child of her sister Adelaide, wife of a clergyman in County Cork, the Reverend J.M. Lane. Lady Gregory was quick to notice the boy's enthusiastic interest in pictures and ornaments, and when, with the breaking up of his parents' marriage, it became necessary for him to earn a living, it was she who succeeded in getting employment for him in Colnaghi's gallery.
8: It wasn't long until she was able to tell of the rightness of her judgment. Once, when he arrived in Paris on his way home from some journey, he had not enough money either to stay there or to pay his fare home. But before the morning was over, he had discovered and bought a picture, one supposes upon credit, and before evening had filled his empty pockets by its sale.
6: Again and again, in her journals and in her biographical sketch of Lane, Lady Gregory recalls stories of that swift, unerring, almost uncanny certainty in recognizing the brushwork of genius which was Hugh Lane's great talent.
4: I was in Cape Town when Hugh Lane was there. I was with him when he visited the old art gallery. There was a picture hung high in a dark place. It was attributed to Bath in the catalogue. But Hugh, at the very first glance, said, It looks more like a Vandenir. They got a ladder and took it down from that high, dark place. And there was Vandenir's signature.
8: That certainty of his was a sixth sense. As we motored through a town, he would recognize the handiwork of some painter, old or new, in a shop window as we passed, and would stop the car and bring it out to show us. And he was never wrong.
0: When he was employed by the Marlborough Gallery in Pall Mall, he was once sent to the country to look for bargains. It was not a very successful trip. He was going back rather gloomily to the train with his third-class ticket and his net empty, cold and disappointed, When passing by a bicycle shop, he caught sight of some pictures and went in. There, he bought one for a song and carried it off to London. It was of very considerable value.
6: With such a gift, it's little wonder that Lady Gregory, looking back through the years, could write of him...
8: He was yet in his early twenties when he had conquered fortune was of the Alchemist's Guild. I think he might have said even then, as he once said to me later, when an offer of £10,000 a year had been made to him... If you would consent to become a buyer for a famous house it would be a very poor year in which i couldn't make ten thousand pounds
6: but the making of ten thousand pounds or of twenty thousand pounds could never have been the prime concern of a man who was so reluctant to spend money on anything but pictures that he was often quite happy to lunch on a bun and a cup of tea and to sit in a room without a fire in his chelsea home where hung a painting by titian which he afterwards sold to America for £25,000... and one of the most lovely Goyers in existence. His chief interest was not in the profits to be made from dealing in pictures... but in the pictures themselves. It was this interest which brought him back to Ireland in the autumn of 1902.
3: There came into the room a tall, thin young man... talking so fast that I gathered with difficulty... that there must be a great many pictures in Irish country houses which he would like to exhibit in Dublin. He sat twisting and untwisting his legs, linking and unlinking his hands, his talk beginning to bore me a little, for I could not detect any aestheticism in him, only a nervous desire to run a show. Without noticing my interruptions, he continued telling me that for the last fortnight he had been travelling through Ireland, visiting all the country houses, and had obtained promises from many people to lend their pictures.
6: That, of course, was George Moore, finding for Hugh Lane a place in that gallery of Dublin portraits etched in acid, which is Hail and Farewell. But Lane's visit to Dublin and the immensely successful exhibition of paintings, which he arranged in the winter of 1902, were of much more lasting importance in the cultural history of Dublin than Moore admits. Thomas Bodkin puts the story of that exhibition into clearer perspective.
5: About this time,
6: 1901 and 2,
5: the Royal Hibernian Academy, which had always struggled with adversity, began an agitation for the redress of their various grievances against the British government. W.B. Yeats took up a cudgel on their behalf and proposed and carried a motion at the London Irish Literary Society, calling on the government to investigate the case. Lane naturally came promptly to the rescue. His practical mind foresaw a long period of indecision while the government temporised. And so, in the early part of 1902, he crossed to Ireland and made a sweeping tour through the great country houses, with a view to organising a winter exhibition of works by the old masters in the Academy's premises in Middle Abbey Street, the proceeds of which might be utilised in relieving their most pressing financial needs.
6: No doubt about it. It was an ambitious plan, and it needed all Lane's drive and energy to see it through. He did get a great deal of help, but he also ran into a great deal of opposition.
8: Of course, there are scores, hundreds of valuable paintings in the country. That's the whole point.
9: Masterpieces have been hanging in houses up and down the country, half forgotten even by their owners. Now, this fellow Lane is going to draw everyone's attention to them, parade them before the world with his guarantee of their value. What's going to happen then? I'll tell you. Every picture-dealer in the world with a nose for a bargain is going to descend on the country waving checkbooks under the noses of hard-up people who will suddenly discover they have gold mines hanging on their walls. For we know where we are... Can't you be swept bare of every picture worth having?
1: He's a dealer. According to reports, Lane makes £10,000 a year. A dealer will never miss the chance of picking up something. Mark my words, you'll find out that he'll pick up something. Something that's going to repay him for all the work he's taking about this exhibition.
4: It strikes me that what Mr Lane's exhibition is most likely to create is a fashion for the masterpieces of the past. And to be quite frank, I can't see how this is to benefit those members of the Royal Hibernian Academy whose livelihood depends upon a fashion for the paintings of today.
8: Mr. Lane has the most wonderful ideas for persuading people to attend the exhibition. Several of us have promised him to hire the galleries and to give evening parties there, charging an admission fee to each of our guests. Amusing, don't you think?
6: Whatever anyone thought, the fact remains that the exhibition was a superb success. But for Lane, it was only a beginning. By the January of 1904, he had accepted the appointment to be governor and guardian to the National Gallery of Ireland. The return of his salary was the smallest of the gifts by which he enriched Ireland's National Gallery. But he had other and even more generous plans in mind. When, in the early summer of 1904, he organised in London an exhibition of a selection of works by Irish painters, he set out in his introduction to the catalogue the project by which his name will always be associated.
2: We have in the Dublin National Gallery a collection of the works of the old masters, which it would be hard to match in the United Kingdom outside London. But there is not in Ireland one single accessible collection or masterpiece of modern or contemporary art. A gallery of Irish and modern art in Dublin would create a standard of taste and a feeling of the relative importance of painters. Such a gallery would be necessary to students if we are to have a distinct school of painting in Ireland,
6: for it's one's contemporaries that teach one the most. That was the beginning, the beginning of a generous dream, of a legal injustice, of a bitter controversy. Before the end of the year, Hugh Lane was responsible for the opening in Dublin of an exhibition of pictures presented to the city of Dublin to form the nucleus of a gallery of modern art.
7: The Dublin Municipal Collection of Modern Art had been well and truly created. Apart from Lane's own gifts to the collection, there were gifts of paintings and of money from a group of patrons which included Lady Audelon and Boss Croker, the Lord Lieutenant himself, and Countess Markiewicz. From as far away as the White House in Washington, President Roosevelt sent encouragement and a subscription. Near her home, the Corporation of Dublin allotted an income of £500 pounds a year for the maintenance of a Municipal Gallery of Modern Art and for the reception of the valuable pictures which had been presented to the State.
0: They did more. After the inevitable delays needed for the cutting of red tape, the Corporation acquired Plonmel House, number 17 Harcourt Street, at a temporary art gallery. The Dublin Municipal Gallery of Modern Art was an established fact. To it, Hugh Lane handed over a fabulously generous gift of pictures and laid down conditions that have been amongst the bones of contention in a controversy that lasted for half a century.
2: I have also deposited here my collection of pictures by continental artists and intend to present most of them,
6: provided that a permanent building is erected on a suitable site within the next few years. The pictures specified in this conditional gift were 39 in number. They were works of the Impressionist School and included paintings by Corot, Degas, Monet, Manet, Renoir. They were a munificent gift, a gift for which any nation might well be grateful. And the conditions upon which they were gifted to Ireland were simple and straightforward. A permanent building, a suitable site. Simple and straightforward stipulations. Yet for years they were capable of touching off virulent argument and dissensions and controversies which were to leave a bitter taste in Hugh Lane's mouth.
9: At a public meeting held in the Mansion House under the chairmanship of His Honour, the Lord Mayor, it was resolved that it ought to be known to the people of Dublin that the pictures linked by Sir Hugh Lane at present housed in Harker Street are in immediate danger of being lost to the city unless a suitable building be provided for their custody and exhibition.
4: Resolved at a special meeting of the Dublin Corporation held on 20th of January, 1913, that this council... Believing that the overwhelming majority of the citizens is in favour of the erection of a municipal art gallery for the purpose of housing the magnificent collection of pictures kindly given upon certain conditions by Sir Hugh Lane and others, hereby agrees to apply the sum of £22,000, being one farthing in the pound of the library rate capitalised in the erection of such municipal art gallery.
1: Lane's architect, Sir Edwin Lutyens suggests a site in St. Stephen's Green. Of course, the permission of Lord Ardalon
3: would have to be sought. Lord Ardalon believes that the erection of such a building would totally destroy the proportions and beauty of the most attractive part of the park. He is strongly opposed to the scheme. Now,
8: where would be a better place for this gallery than right opposite the new National University? I believe Yeats was asked to sound Lane's opinion on this site.
1: Hugh Lane will not hear of this. Nothing would induce him to put a beautiful building opposite such an ugly one. Merriam Square? Oh, far too many free public institutions already grouped in that residential quarter. The garden of the mansion house?
0: Uh, no, uh, no, too small.
1: The old Turkish baths in Lincoln Place?
0: Uh, no,
1: no, too dear.
5: Upper Ormond
1: Key? No, no. Essex
5: Key?
0: No, no.
6: Site after sight was suggested and rejected. And then, in the spring of 1913, Lane brought Edwin Lutyens again to Dublin. And from that visit came the idea that it was to be the focus and centre of years of controversy.
7: The idea of the bridge site. The idea was that since no plot of earth could be found on which to place the gallery, it should be built on a bridge, poised, as it were, between air and water. Lane wrote enthusiastically of this idea...
2: The committee and the press and the principal corporation officials have agreed to pulling down the hideous metal bridge covered with advertisements and to build a gallery on a stone-faced bridge. It will be a most beautiful and sensational ornament to Dublin and will in no way spoil the existing view
4: and will bring more life to the centre of the old city. Lutyens was enthusiastic about the idea. It is an idea so full of imagination and possibility that it
6: is almost impossible to resist the city architect gave sober approval to the idea. I consider that it would be a very great ornament to the city. Yeats gave the idea his benediction and an enthusiastic endorsement of its aesthetic values. I have just seen Lutchen's design. Beautiful. Two buildings
1: joined by a row of columns. It is meant to show the sunset through the columns. There are to be statues on top.
6: But all was not plain sailing. Of the 45,000 pounds which the gallery would cost, the corporation would have to find 22,000 pounds. Private gifts would be needed to make up the balance. Gifts did come in, but slowly. So slowly that Yeats was spurred to write the vehement poem To a Wealthy Man, which begins with the savage lines You
1: gave, but will not give again, until enough of poor Jean's pence by Biddy's halfpennies have lain to be some sort of evidence. Before you'll put your guineas down, that things that were a pride to give are what the blind and ignorant town imagines best to make it thrive.
6: But Yates' voice, rebuking the men of wealth who withheld their help until the people at large showed their desire to have the bridge gallery built by subscribing to the cost, was not the only voice raised. Soon the Irish air was shrill with argument. If the people in Dublin want a grand picture gallery on a bridge,
3: let them pay for it. I'm entirely in favour of building a gallery, but is this bridge site a suitable one? Surely the damp airs and the fluvia of the river will cause irreparable damage to pictures, there. Before any decision is made, we must ask ourselves if these
5: continental pictures which Sir Hugh Lane and his friends wish to exhibit are fitting to be
1: shown to the people of Dublin. What does the corporation think it's doing? Building a
4: monument to Hugh Lane at the ratepayer's expense. The corporation has cast a slur on the reputations of Ireland's architects by agreeing to the employment of a foreigner as designer of a municipal building. We would be failing in our duty as a national
3: newspaper if we did not ask why this money is to be spent not on alleviating the misery of the thousands wretchedly housed in Dublin slums,
6: but on a project designed to flatter the vanity of a small group of so-called intellectuals. Understandably, both Hugh Lane's patience and the time limit he now set upon his conditional gift were running out. In September of 1913,
0: the corporation came to a final decision. The corporation has decided that the selection of the site and the nomination of the architect must be left to its own decision. It was the last straw.
6: Lane carried out his threat promptly, and on the 27th of September, he removed from Clunmel House his conditional gift. The 39 Continental Pictures were transported without delay to London, and handed over to the London National Gallery. In October, Lane made a new will, in which he expressed his bitter disappointment.
2: I bequeathed the remainder of my property to the National Gallery of Ireland instead of to the Dublin Modern Art Gallery, which I considered so important for the founding of an Irish school of painting, to be invested and the income to be spent on buying pictures of deceased painters of established merit. I hope that this alteration from the Modern Gallery to the National Gallery will be remembered by the Dublin municipality and others as an example of its want of public spirit in the year 1913, and for the folly of such bodies assuming to decide on questions of art instead of relying
6: on expert opinion. And so the matter of Lane's gift to Dublin seemed to have come to an end. The 39 paintings hung in the Tate Gallery. Dublin had lost an offered treasure. So matters stood, or seemed to stand, when Hugh Lane sailed to America in the April of 1915. A month later, he made the return journey from America in the Lusitania the ship was sunk by a German submarine off the coast of Cork. Hugh Lane was one of those drowned.
7: But it wasn't at an end. It was, in fact, a new beginning. Quite soon after Lane's death, there came to light a document written on the official notepaper of the National Gallery, dated the 3rd February 1915, a few weeks before Hugh Lane undertook the trip to America, which ended with his death. It was a codicil to Lane's will.
2: This is a codicil to my last will, to the effect that the group of pictures now at the London National Gallery, which I had bequeathed to that institution... I now bequeath to the city of Dublin, providing that a suitable building is provided for them within five years of my
6: death. Hugh Lane had changed his mind. There was the proof of it, written in his own hand, signed not once, but three times, a revocation of his bequest to London, a codicil declaring that his last wishes were that his collection of pictures should go to the city for which he originally intended them, to Dublin. Lady Gregory, the trustee named in the codicil, immediately published Lane's last wishes and claimed the pictures for Ireland.
8: But the granting of Hugh Lane's last wishes was not to be such a simple and straightforward matter. From Lord Curzon, one of the trustees of the English National Gallery, came a reply to Lady Gregory, a cold and formal reply that foreshadowed the legalistic arguments of the years to come.
1: I have brought this matter before my colleague. But it would not be in their power to make any suggestion as to the action which may have to be taken until they are fully informed as to the legal character of Sir Hugh Lane's
6: testamentary dispositions. The legal character of Sir Hugh Lane's testamentary dispositions. There it was. The legal ground for refusing to implement Lane's last wishes. Hugh Lane had neglected to have his signature to the codicil witnessed. In the eyes of the law, the codicil had no legal force. The picture stayed in London. But not without a fight.
3: At once, Lady Gregory began the battle that was to last for more than 40 years. From all possible quarters, she collected evidence to show that the codicil truly
4: represented Lane's last wishes. Affidavit and statutory declaration of Mrs. Ruth Shine, sister to Sir Hugh Lane.
8: I have no doubt whatsoever that he considered it legal. I have approached this subject without any bias in favour of Dublin, but as his sister, anxious that his intentions should be carried out.
4: Sworn statement of Mrs. Duncan, curator of the Dublin Municipal Gallery of Modern Art.
8: I last saw Sir Hugh Lane on the last day of his stay in Dublin and had a conversation with him about his collection of continental pictures, which was then stored in the London National Gallery. He said that he wished to bring these pictures to Dublin.
4: Declaration of Mr. A. W. West, cousin to Sir Hugh Lane.
8: He told me definitely and unequivocally on the 3rd of April 1915 that he had decided after all to let Dublin have the pictures that he had sent to London. Personally, I do not consider that Dublin deserves the pictures, and I have no interest in making this declaration beyond a strong desire that what I look upon as the dying wish of a great friend and relative, whose memory I revere, should be
4: respected. George Russell, A.E., added his testimony to the claim that the carousel represented Lane's last wishes.
8: I met Sir Hugh Lane on the day previous to his departure from Dublin for his last journey to the United States. I asked Lane, are we to lose the pictures? He replied, oh, Dublin will get the pictures all right. I made threats to frighten people here, to get them to move.
6: So they came forward, those friends and acquaintances and colleagues of Lane, to declare and to swear and to affirm that this codicil truly represented his last wishes. In London, the government set up a committee to consider certain questions relating to the 39 pictures bequeathed under the will of the late Sir Hugh Lane. The committee finds that the late Sir Hugh Lane, in
1: signing the codicil of the 3rd February, 1915, thought he was making a legal disposition.
3: Oh, yes. The committee had to agree that Lane wished to have the pictures returned to Dublin, but they didn't recommend that legal action should be taken to make that wish possible, and the government, standing pat on the grounds of legality, refused to act upon the technically invalid codicil and refused to introduce legislation which would validate Lane's wishes. But Lane's friends didn't give up easily. They continued to fight for the return of the pictures. Chief amongst the fighters was Lady Gregory, of whom Gabriel Fallon says...
0: She wrote, she travelled, she interviewed, she begged, pleaded, reasoned, coaxed, cajoled in her unflagging efforts to give effect to what she knew were her nephew's intentions. Lennox Robinson recalls her efforts. There is something heroic and pathetic in this old, unfortunate widow begging at this doorstep and at that. Waving all her political feelings, today it would be Carson, tomorrow John Redmond, T.P. O'Connor, Augustine Biddle, later Cosgrave, Ernest Blythe, Eamon de Valera. And so it went on down through the years,
6: through the 20s and the 30s, through the years of war and the uneasy years of the 40s and the 50s, by newspaper correspondence and by parliamentary question, by public protest and by diplomatic exchanges, and sometimes by less peaceful
3: methods.
8: April 12, 1956. Sensational raid on Tate Gallery.
3: Today, a picture valued at more than £7,000 vanished from the walls of the Tate Gallery. The missing picture... Jour Tate," painted by the French
5: Impressionist painter Berthé Morisot, was one of 39 pictures bequeathed to the London National Gallery by the late Sir Hugh Lane. Ownership of the pictures
4: has been repeatedly disputed by Irish interests. A news agency reports that they sent a cameraman to the Tate Gallery following a phone call stating that a demonstration would take place there. Shortly after the photographer reached the Tate, a young man emerged from the gallery carrying a suitcase. An unknown man standing beside the photographer said, ''Take that man.''
9: Police are in possession of a photograph of a young man believed to be the one who took a valuable painting from a room in the Tate Gallery. The authorities are anxious to contact a taxi driver...
6: But the nine days wonder created by the group of young Irish university students who took the picture and later returned it safely to the Tate Gallery did not alter the situation. The arguments about the picture still went on. In Dublin, a suitable gallery had been acquired, and in that gallery a room stood symbolically empty, awaiting the return of the pictures. There were parliamentary questions and discussions at high level. There were public protests and newspaper controversies. And then, not altogether unexpectedly, in the end, November of 1959, there was decision.
8: It was announced by the Taoiseach in the door this afternoon that an agreement had been concluded which will enable the Lane Pictures to be lent to this country for public exhibition here over a period of 20 years. The agreement has been made between the commissioners of public works, acting as agents for the government, and the trustees of the National Gallery of London. The Taoiseach told the House that the 39 pictures in the Lane Collection will be divided into two groups, which will be lent in turn for public exhibition in Dublin for successive periods of five years over a total period of 20 years.
6: And so it was settled. The controversy that had raged since the summer of 1915 was at an end. The empty room in the Dublin Municipal Gallery of Modern Art was tenanted. The first of Hugh Lane's continental pictures came home to Dublin.
10: The distinguished art critic, Mr James White, tells us now about those pictures. Yes, indeed. What a pleasure it is to see them in the Municipal Gallery. And what a genius was Lane for every one of the pictures which he purchased so long ago has some special interest. Renoir's Les Parapluies is the world's most popular picture, if one judges on reproduction sales. It shows the love of a young man for his charming midinette and the affection of an older woman for her two grandchildren. The exquisite pink and cream flesh tones remind us that Renoir was trained in the Sèvres porcelain factory, but the bustle and swirl of the streets behind is all held in marvellous unity by the way light is seen to scintillate on the costumes and sparkle on everything between the ground and the sky. As well as the Renoir, there are four other masterpieces in the 20. The superb Eva Gonzales by Manet radiates the life of the woman with daring modernism, because Manet avoided the grey shadows or any semblance of a line. At the other end of the century, Angre represented almost everything that the portraitist had sought to achieve on the ideal plane from Raphael's time to the present, elegance and an incredible lifelike perfection which causes one to marvel at the concealment of technique and makes us regard the Duc d'Orléans with the reverent awe of a humble subject. Corot uses a line of foreground trees in silhouette to carry our eyes away to the Palace of the Popes at Avignon and even further to the violet hills on the horizon. The brilliance of a Claude, the loneliness of Van Gogh, and the romantic spirit of the 19th century makes this landscape a dream. But Daumier was dealing with different dreams when he painted Don Quixote, for we see the Spanish gallant charging down a valley on his horse, no doubt expressing the artist's desire for deeds of greatness after the manner of T. C. Murray's Autumn Fires or Singh's Playboy. The extraordinary interest in the Lane Pictures is in no small part due to the fact that they virtually paraphrase the whole history of the nineteenth-century styles in Europe. The sentiment, which so relied on childish innocence, is there in Jacob Marie's Feeding the Birds. Social satire is represented by Foran's legal assistance. The great religious subject, Pouves de Chavannes' Beheading of St John, Realism, the various works by Courbet, and the Boudin and the Yonkind linked the followers of Rousseau with the popular Impressionists. Lane flung his net wide to find all that was good, so that the new generation of Irish painters would be inspired to deeds of artistic daring. For we must never forget that it was love of Ireland which spurred him on to such great efforts. He sold the idea of a civilised and cultivated people to the English in the 1902 exhibition in London, and he did much to foster the spirit here at home which makes us now rejoice that we are welcoming back, after all these years, the famous Lane Collection, that is to say, the first instalment, and, in my opinion, the better half.
0: Was Hugh Lane and his pictures The Story of the Lane Bequest by Philip Rooney? Sir Hugh Lane was played by Frank O'Dwyer, and also taking part were Deirdre O'Mara, Jeanette Waddell, Arthur O'Sullivan, Seamus Ford, Lionel Day, George Green, Brendan Caldwell, Lawrence Bourne, and Noel Lynch. Production was by Michael Garvey. <laughs>